The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. How are you? Happy autumn for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, and happy spring to everyone else. I'm Jack Wilson. Here we go with another episode of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. So, the history of literature. What are we doing over here? <laughs> Taking a bit of vacation, a lot of vacation. It has been a while with a little Marcel Proust in there just to tide you over, but we're headed for the fall, and that's always felt to me like a time of beginnings, a renewal. I was a student for many years, and a child of a teacher, a couple of teachers, and I'm married to a professor and the if I'm the parent of children in school, I've never really lost the rhythms of the academic year. The way that summer feels like a time for reorganizing one's thoughts, or the way that winter feels like a time for buckling down and burrowing one's head into the books. And the way that spring feels a little lazy, like a time of wrapping things up, and the way that fall feels like a time of fresh starts and new beginnings. It's the opposite of how the seasons work, so that's interesting. That's an interesting juxtaposition. The leaves are budding, the flowers are sprouting, and I feel like something is dying because my year is almost over on the academic schedule. And in the fall, when death is drifting downward, surrounding us with crisp, crackling leaves that get churned into the soil, I feel like a new man, full of vim and vigor, and ready for my new start. I said this to a writer once, one who I suspect resented his life as a teacher. Not this whole florid passage, but something innocuous like, hey, aren't you looking forward to the fall? New students, new classes, new beginnings. And he looked at me with his mournful expression and said, it feels like this giant weight descending on the campus. All these people who don't know who they are or what to do or where to go. It's kind of awful. <laughs> Luckily, dear listeners, I didn't take his words to heart. I still feel the excitement of the fall, just like Nabokov felt the thrill whenever he heard train wheels starting to rattle. The generation of energy without and within. So, I have recently really returned from a fantastic trip to the United Kingdom, which is it's a very interesting time to be an American in the United Kingdom, August 2019. I'm used to some good-natured ribbing between the two nations and their residents. In ordinary times, it's all a bit harmless. A sort of Bill Clinton's kind of preening, isn't he? And the response, well, he's not the portrait of modesty that Tony Blair is, to be sure. Ha ha ha, smile, smile. Pass the clotted cream, let's have a cup of tea. This time the politics are so heavy, almost undiscussable. There's a sort of shared misery there, as if two people met and one of them had just lost their mother, and the other one had also just lost their mother. Ah, oh, uh, more of a, I was sorry to hear that. The sentence just dissolving into exhaustion because our problems are so exhausting they leave no room for commiseration. The response from the other side is a heavy sigh and a thank you. And I was sorry to hear that. That one dissolves too and we just look into each other's eyes and shake our heads. My British friends are stuck between a rock and a hard place, except that's not exactly right, is it? It's a rock of the known, and the hard place is not a hard place. It's the vast and infinite space of uncertainty. A kingdom on the one hand, and a set of alliances, and on the other, the unforeseeable future. A path full of fog, and a set of chattering ignoramuses offering themselves up as the guides. Nowhere, nothing, and only the certainty that time will march forward to point the way. Meanwhile, we Americans are going through the same cycle we always do, where the 
inherent contradictions of the nation, the intrinsic contradictions which are never addressed and never fully resolved, get resurrected like zombies. We think they are dead. We fool ourselves that they are, but they're not. They're only under the ground, waiting for their chance to reemerge and haunt the streets, talking about the central contradiction of race and class, which we bury under myths of opportunity for everyone and commitment to melting pot diversity. We have ideals and then we have reality. And pushing the latter in the direction of the former is the central American project. But that's like saying that Sisyphus had a central project of moving a rock to the top of a hill. Sisyphus was not two steps forward, one step back. He rolled a boulder up a hill, and that boulder always rolled back down, all the way down. And he was forced to do this for infinity. A boulder, like all men are created equal, was rolled up here in America, and the reality that those who wrote and supported those beautiful words also supported a system that was, by definition, marked by inequality. And they knew this contradiction. They knew it was there. Maybe we should do a show on the founders, actually. They have their role in our story. It's a literary story, too. They knew this contradiction. They found clever ways to circumvent it. But it meant that the boulder would forever come rolling back down on us Americans, leaving generation after generation to struggle with both the effort to push it forward, to heave it up, and the dangerous and disheartening plummeting back to the bottom. Clever people they were, throwing off a king in the name of democracy and equality, but benefiting from some anti-democratic weaknesses and failings was a very, very clever cheat that led to a nation that also led to a civil war less than 100 years later, and a fractured and vulnerable position easily exploited that we're still in today. Maybe we are not as clever as we think. Maybe it's more hubris than cleverness, which in fact was Sisyphus's crime. That's why he was in the position of the first place, hubris. Specifically, he claimed to be more clever than Zeus, and he was not. But that was only part of my journey. I'll save some of the stories of my trip for later so we can get to some literature here. Let's turn instead to Scotland and Edinburgh, which I think I chose as the greatest literary city of all in our draft with Mike of Great Literary Cities. And if I didn't, I'd like to change my pick. It is fantastic. The number one literary city in the world, in my opinion. We were there at the end of the Fringe Festival, which I mostly ignored, but you can feel the excitement in the air, all those people heading off to theaters. And for me, wandering around the streets and just bumping into the steps of Miss Jean Brodie and the graves of David Hume and Adam Smith and seeing the statues of Rabbi Burns and, my God, just breathing the air of heroes like Boswell and Sir Walter Scott and J.K. Rowling, all in that beautiful old city with the castle above shooting off fireworks and filling our hotel window with lights and colors and the thundering excitement of being alive in 2019. Politics be damned. Literature lasts. It perseveres, and so do we, if we are lucky and if we are any good. We just need to persevere. So, in honor of Scotland, and in honor of my trip there, and in particular a fantastic trip I had to the Isles of Skye and Mull, and a fantastic lunch I had in Edinburgh, in one of those secret little cafes that you reach by cutting through the narrow slanting steps and corridors off of the main building, the closes, I guess they're called, we're going to look at one of those forces of nature, a man who searched for good health, took him all over the world, and whose travels combined with his sense of adventure, combined with his sneaky intelligence and genuinely original sensibility, led to the production of some classic works of literature. Robert Louis Stevenson, coming up after this.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Edinburgh in 1850 to a man named Thomas Stevenson, a civil engineer who had several commissions building lighthouses. The nature of his job meant that young Robert spent a lot of time on the coasts, and in particular the Isle of Mull, and an island off of the island called Arade. Arade? <laughs> Not sure the pronunciation. I'll give you the spelling. E-R-R-A-I-D which was later to inspire the setting of one of Robert Louis Stevenson's greatest works, Kidnapped. Stevenson's mind was triggered by these islands, including another island called Staffa, famous for its remote beauty and its underwater caves, and the general excitement that coasts can bring, especially in those days. The sea is full of danger and mystery, but also promise and adventure and it's hard even today to be in a town like Oban and not think of setting forth in a boat to go from Emerald Isle to Emerald Isle to see what's at each one, to make these discoveries for ourselves, and to see what we ourselves become when we are there. The setting may have appealed to Stevenson, but the life of a civil engineer did not, in spite of his father's hopes that his son would study the building of lighthouses and other structures. Stevenson had in mind a life as a writer. To placate his father, he studied law, which he never practiced, instead writing essays and travel books, and eventually poetry and novels. He wasn't an immediate success, and there were times when he had to beg his father for cash to help him out. He was also chasing love around the world, falling in love with a woman married to his cousin at one point, and a married American woman at another, and he was constantly searching for new locations that would help what he believed would kill him, tuberculosis. He went to England, he went to the French Riviera, he went to America first, New York, then San Francisco and Monterey. He went to Davos, Switzerland, and this was all before the age of 30. He went back to the Scottish Highlands for a while, until a cholera outbreak chased him to England, where he met up with Henry James and wrote some of his greatest works, and finally achieved some measure of success and prosperity. Then back to New York, back to San Francisco, and then to the South Seas, where he would spend the rest of his life. The Marquesas Islands, Tahiti, Honolulu, the Gilbert Islands, and Samoa, where he died in 1894 at the age of 44. It wasn't tuberculosis that killed him, but what is believed to have been a cerebral hemorrhage. He was on Samoa, trying to open a bottle of wine when he suddenly felt a strain. And he said to his wife, what is that? What is that? Does my face look strange? And collapsed. Within a few hours, he was dead. Forty-four years old. The Samoans helped with the burial. And he was on a spot overlooking the sea. On land donated by a a wealthy British man, the acting vice Council Thomas Trude. And he has this on his tombstone. This was a poem that he had written earlier. 
Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me, here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. Hmm. So, what do we make of his life? Throughout these peregrinations of Stevenson, he wrote essays and travel books and poetry, and of course, the novels for which we know him today. Kidnapped, Treasure Island, and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In all, he wrote or co-wrote something like a dozen novels. I think 13 is the official number. A couple of dozen short stories, five volumes of poetry, and seven or eight travel books. An industrious 20-year career. It's only 20 years or so. We'll talk about his three most famous works, along with some of the others, to give you a sense of who he was and where he stands in the history of literature. Because that is who we are, and that is what we do. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with a passage of Stevenson to give you a flavor of his writing. This is chapter one of Kidnapped. Chapter one. I set off upon my journey to the House of Shaw's. I will begin the story of my adventures with a certain morning early in the month of June, the year of grace, 1751, when I took the key for the last time out of the door of my father's house. The sun began to shine upon the summit of the hills as I went down the road, and by the time I had come as far as the manse, the blackbirds were whistling in the garden lilacs, and the mist that hung around the valley in the time of the dawn was beginning to arise and die away. Mr. Campbell, the minister of Essendine, was waiting for me by the garden gate, good man. He asked me if I had breakfasted, and hearing that I lacked for nothing, he took my hand in both of his and clapped it kindly under his arm. Well, Davy, lad, said he, I will go with you as far as the ford to set you on the way. And we began to walk forward in silence. Are you sorry to leave, Essendine? said he after a while. Why, sir, said I, if I knew where I was going or what was likely to become of me, I would tell you candidly. Essendine is a good place indeed, and I have been very happy there, but then I have never been anywhere else. My father and mother, since they are both dead, I shall be no nearer to in Essendin than in the kingdom of Hungary. And to speak truth, if I thought I had a chance to better myself where I was going, I would go with a good will. I said Mr. Campbell. Very well, Davy. Then it behooves me to tell your fortune, or so far as I may. When your mother was gone and your father, the worthy Christian man, began to sicken for his end, he gave me in charge a certain letter, which he said was your inheritance. So soon, says he, as I am gone, and the house is read up and the gear disposed of, all which Davy hath been done. Give my boy this letter into his hand and start him off to the house of Shaw's not far from Cremont. That is the place I came from, he said, and it's where it befits that my boy should return. He is a steady lad, your father said, and a canny goer, and I doubt not he will come safe and be well lived where he goes. The House of Shaws, I cried. What had my poor father to do with the House of Shaws? Nay, said Mr. Campbell, who can tell that for a surety? But the name of that family, Davy, boy, is the name you bear, Balfours of Shaw's, an ancient, honest, reputable house, peradventure in these latter days decayed. Your father, too, was a man of learning, as befitted his position. No man more plausibly conducted school, nor had he the manner or the speech of a common dominie. But, as ye will yourself remember, I took I a pleasure to have him to the manse to meet the gentry and those of my own house. Campbell of Kilrennet, Campbell of Dunswire, Campbell of Minch, and others, all well-kenned gentlemen, had pleasure in his society. Lastly, to put all the elements of this affair before you, here is the testamentary letter itself, superscribed by the own hand of our departed brother. He gave me the letter, which was addressed in these words, to the hands of Ebenezer Balfour, Esquire of Shaw's, in his house of Shaw's, these will be delivered by my son, David Balfour. My heart was beating hard at this great prospect, 
now suddenly opening before a lad of seventeen years of age, the son of a poor country dominie in the forest of Ettrick. Mr. Campbell, I stammered, and if you were in my shoes, would you go? Of a surety, said the minister, that would I, and without pause, a pretty lad like you should get to Cremont, which is nearby in Edinburgh, in two days of walk. If the worst came to the worst, and your high relations, as I cannot but suppose them to be somewhat of your blood, should put you to the door, ye can but walk the two days back again, and risp at the man's door. But I would rather hope that ye shall be well received, as your poor father forecast for you, and for anything that I can come to be a great man in time. And here, Davy laddie, he resumed, it lies near upon my conscience to improve this parting and set you on the right guard against the dangers of the world. Here he cast about for a comfortable seat, lighted on a big boulder under a birch by the trackside, sat down upon it with a very long, serious upper lip, and the sun now shining in upon us between two peaks, put his pocket handkerchief over his cocked hat to shelter him. There then, with uplifted forefinger, he first put me on my guard against a considerable number of heresies, to which I had no temptation, and urged upon me to be instant in my prayers and reading of the Bible. That done, he drew a picture of the great house that I was bound to, and how I should conduct myself with its inhabitants. Be supple, Davy, in things immaterial, said he, bear ye this in mind, that though gentle-born ye have had a country-rearing. Dinna shame us, Davy, dinna shame us. In yon great muckle house with all these domestics, upper and under, show yourself as nice, as circumspect, as quick at the conception, and as slow of speech as any. As for the laird, remember, he's the laird, I say no more, honor to whom honor. It's a pleasure to obey a laird, or should be, to the young. Well, sir, said I, it may be, and I'll promise you I'll try to make it so. Why, very well said, replied Mr. Campbell heartily, and now to come to the material, or to make a quibble, to the immaterial. I have here a little packet which contains four things. He tugged it as he spoke, and with some great difficulty from the skirt pocket of his coat. Of these four things, the first is your legal due, the little pickle money for your father's books and plenishing, which I have bought, as I have explained from the first, in the design of reselling at a profit to the incoming dominie. The other three are gifties that Mrs. Campbell and myself would be blithe of your acceptance. The first, which is round, will likely please ye best at the first off-go, but, oh, Davy laddie, it's but a drop of water in the sea. It'll help you but a step, and vanish like the morning. The second, which is flat and square and written upon, will stand by you through life, like a good staff for the road, and a good pillow to your head in sickness. And as for the last, which is cubical, that'll see you. It's my prayerful wish into a better land. With that, he got up upon his feet, took off his hat, and prayed a little while aloud and in affecting terms for a young man setting out into the world. Then suddenly took me in his arms and embraced me very hard, then held me at arm's length, looking at me with his face all working with sorrow, and then whipped about and crying goodbye to me, set off backward by the way that he, we had come at a sort of jogging run. It might have been laughable to another, but I was in no mind to laugh. I watched him as long as he was in sight, and he never stopped hurrying, nor once looked back. Then it came in upon my mind that this was all his sorrow at my departure, and my conscience smote me hard and fast, because I, for my part, was overjoyed to get away out of that quiet countryside and go to a great busy house among rich and respected gentlefolk of my own name and blood. Davy, Davy, I thought, was ever seen such black ingratitude? Can you forget old favors and old friends at the mere whistle of a name? Fie, fie, think shame. And I sat down on the boulder the good man had just left, and opened the parcel to see the nature of my gifts. That which he had called cubicle I had never had much doubt of. Sure enough, it was a little Bible to carry in a plaid nuke. That which he had called round, I found to be a shilling piece. 
And the third, which was to help me so wonderfully both in health and sickness all the days of my life, was a little piece of coarse yellow paper, written upon thus in red ink. To make lily of the valley water. Take the flowers of lily of the valley and distill them in sack, and drink a spoonful or two as there is occasion. It restores speech to those that have the dumb palsy. It is good against the gout. It comforts the heart and strengthens the memory. And the flowers put into a glass, closed stopped, and set into a hill of ants for a month. Then take it out, and you will find a liquor, which comes from the flowers, which keep in a vial. It is good, ill or well, and whether man or woman. And then, in the minister's own hand, was added, Likewise for sprains, rub it in, and for the colic, a great spoonful in the hour. To be sure, I laughed over this, but it was rather tremulous laughter, and I was glad to get my bundle on my staff's end, and set out over the ford and up the hill upon the further farther side, till, just as I came on the green drove road running wide through the heather, I took my last look of Kirk Essendon, the trees about the manse, and the big rowans in the kirkyard where my father and my mother lay. There we go. That's the first chapter of Kidnapped. We are off. It's like a master class in how to get an adventure story going. A young hero, we learn, without parents, alone in the world, ready to seek his fortune. A future full of uncertainty, but a hero who's excited and anxious, but not afraid to face it. And a guide who presents to him a few mysteries full of possibility. The House of Shaws, I cried. What had my poor father to do with the House of Shaws? <laughs> Such a good sentence. Tells us his whole background, his whole childhood, there has been a mystery in retrospect. What had his father to do with the House of Shaws? And why did the son not know? Why had that been kept from him all those years? Such a good sentence. Such an incredibly well-done kickoff to our festivities. His father was a good man, we hear. He was poor, but he had a, an air of nobility around him. He had secrets. And our hero, David Balfour, has something to learn now about himself. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't even know much. He has a few hints, a few clues to follow. He has his upbringing to rely upon and his wits and whatever courage he can muster. He's almost like a detective immersed in the search for himself. He has a guide who can't go with him, but who can give him some objects, four of them, to help him out. And he says, I laughed over this, but it was rather tremulous laughter. And there we go. We see his state of mind as he takes his last look through the heather at his childhood landscape and the trees that mark where his mother, father and mother lay. He's alone, he's young, he's got possibilities, but has no idea what the future holds in store for him. It's compelling, page-turning stuff. A child could jump in to this world. A 12-year-old would read it breathlessly. And we know some of the writers who did read these books many times, starting in their youth, but also admiring Robert Louis Stevenson throughout their lives. John Buchan, author of The 39 Steps, was one of them, and Cesare Pavese in Italy, and Vladimir Nabokov and Italo Calvino and James Joyce, they were all fans. Graham Greene devoured these books and also had a direct connection. His mother, who was Scottish, was Stevenson's first cousin. That's one of those amazing tidbits of literary history that I never get tired of. The two men never met. Stevenson died about 10 years before Greene was born, but Greene was, of course, aware of the connection and often cited Stevenson as a favorite, and as an influence. Jorge Luis Borges was a fan, and so was Hemingway, and so was Joseph Conrad. The list goes on. It's so impressive and diverse, I think I need to dig into it a little more here. It's easy to guess that his fellow Scotsman J.M. Barrie admired his works, which he did, or that Jack London was an ardent fan, which he was. That's Sort of like guessing that Kobe Bryant admired Michael Jordan. Or Lady Gaga watched and learned from Madonna. But Bertolt Brecht was also an admirer of Stevenson. That's not necessarily intuitive. And Henry James and Marcel Proust 
These are writers one might expect to take the critical view that Virginia Woolf did, who dismissed Stevenson as a writer for children. That's actually some truth to that. There's more for adults in James or Proust or Woolf herself. Even some of his fans dismissed him as a crowd pleaser. Stephen Crane and H.G. Wells thought that he'd sold out his gifts. Stevenson was a triumph, said H.G. Wells, of talent over genius. But if that's the case, then why do James and Proust and people like that cite Stevenson as a favorite and as an influence? Why do they return to his books? Well, you might think, and you might say, it's because men are just boys at heart. Or, to be more inclusive, which I think is actually more appropriate these days, you could say we're all young at heart, men and women alike. We like this idea of projecting ourselves into the shoes of a young hero on the cusp of adventure. Whether that hero is Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker or kidnaps David Balfour. But I think there's a bit more than that when we're talking about the admiration that writers have for these books. I think it's because they are a testament to the power of fiction. The power of fiction. I think Graham Greene and Henry James and Marcel Proust knew the difference between critics and scholars and very serious adults who are looking for philosophy or social commentary or moral ambiguity or other insights into life and character. who are looking for inventive language poetic language, all those critics, all those adult grown-up readers wearing neckties, and the readers who read a page and want to read another page and another and another. The power of fiction to pull you in, to keep you reading, to excite the imagination. It's why Conan Doyle admired Stevenson. That's, there's a page-turner for you. Try putting Conan Doyle down. And Joseph Conrad and film critic Roger Ebert, another great admirer. Hilary Mantel, the author of Wolf Hall, was another fan of Stevenson. That's what James and Proust, who know that they their projects are different, they're up to something different. But it's why people like that, authors like that, wanted to borrow some of Stevenson's magic. Plot and surprise and suspense, and above all, forward movement, unlocking worlds, giving readers an adventure, taking them on that journey, whether that's the world of ships and treasure and good guys and bad guys, or whether it's subtle discoveries and small but meaningful epiphanies and the microcosm of relationships that we have with one another. That's what fiction does. What Stevenson has, the suspense and excitement that he can generate in a reader is the true source of fiction's power. Fiction isn't like the movies, with visual effects and music and sound, and it isn't like music, which can reach deep into the body on a pre-verbal level. Fiction is a handful of tricks, voice is one, and compelling narratives are another. Stevenson, at his best, was a master of both. Even James and Proust, two of the most elevated and rarefied writers ever to wield a pen, knew that at the heart of their readership, at the heart of this endeavor, were men and women who might take some pleasures in the language and psychology and cerebral aspects of their works, but who also knew what it was like to be up late at night, unable to stop reading the story. As Borges put it, reading Stephen, sorry, reading Stevenson was, quote, among the greatest literary joys I have ever experienced. End quote. Okay. That almost seemed like a wrap-up. Let's take a quick break, then come back with the plots and inspiration for our great Stevenson works, then give you a handful of other things to think about after this.
Let's turn now to Stevenson's great work, The Sea Cook. What? You haven't heard of The Sea Cook? Well, it had an alternative title. The Sea Cook or Treasure Island. Can you imagine having a title like Treasure Island right there in front of you and giving it second place to The Sea Cook? It's like those alternative titles Fitzgerald had. The High Bouncing Lover, and Trimalchio in West Egg, and On the Road to West Egg. <laughs> the Great Gatsby was right there. Just use it. Come on, Paul McCartney, don't go with scrambled eggs. Use Yesterday. It's a great title. Treasure Island is the story of a young Jim Hawkins, who starts the novel in the inn that he helps his parents run. One day, a mysterious fellow... A captain who seems a little desperate and ragged arrives and takes a room at the inn. As it turns out, the captain is a pirate who is worried he's going to be given a black spot, which means that other pirates will try to kill him. But he has a treasure map that could make him rich. Jim Hawkins winds up with the map and a plan to seek out the treasure, but he inadvertently hires some scalawags to serve on his crew, including Long John Silver great literary character, who plans to steal the treasure and kill Jim and the other non-pirates as soon as it's found. And there we go. The action is in place, and we are treated to mutinies, treachery, sword fights, a quest for treasure, murder. The book Treasure Island gave us treasure maps with an X marking the spot, the black spot that portends death. One-legged seamen, the whole pirate genre really is found in Treasure Island. You can put Captain Hook and Captain Jack Sparrow right into this world and not miss a beat. Wasn't the first book about pirates, but it might be the best. The atmosphere, the excitement, the thrills, and the fun. What else does the novel have? Morality. A bit of it. Who's right? Who are we rooting for? Who owns the treasure? Who deserves it? Who's going to get it? What lines cannot be crossed? It's kind of like The Godfather, some of those mafia movies. When you're in a world like this, a lawless world, what rules and norms come into place to guide behavior and tell us what's right and what's wrong? That's all part of the fabric of this novel, even if those themes are sometimes overshadowed by the adventure. Where did Stevenson get the idea for Treasure Island? Well, that has been the source of some contention. His friend William Ernest Henley, a man with a wooden leg, served as a model for Long John Silver. And, like Shakespeare, Stevenson borrowed liberally from other literary sources. Robinson Crusoe is in there, and Edgar Allan Poe's The Gold Bug, and a few others that have been totally eclipsed. A book called Masterman Ready by Captain Marriott, and Wolfert Weber by Washington Irving, the man who gave us both The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. Stevenson was unapologetic for the literary borrowings with the second greatest excuse for plagiarism that I have ever heard. Well, Stevenson said, I really only wrote this book for my family. <laughs> like that matters when you're getting rich from it. The greatest excuse... I have ever heard for plagiarism, by the way, was George Harrison. He copied He's So Fine for his hit, My Sweet Lord. I think he ended up owning both songs or something, and so the money he paid ended up back in his own pockets. But he was asked as a songwriter, wasn't he ashamed of the plagiarism? Wasn't it on his conscience? Didn't it diminish him as an artist? And he... Gave that George Harrison wry smile and said, Well, I think all great artists draw upon their life experience for their art. And one of my life experiences was listening to the song, He's So Fine. <laughs> How great is that? Let's move into some other works of Stevenson. We're not going to get into The Hair Trunk, The Wrong Box, The Wrecker, Prince Otto, or The Black Arrow mainly because I haven't read them, but I understand them to be action romances set in various historical settings, sometimes imaginary. Instead, 
Let's move to Kidnapped, which we started talking about earlier. We gave you the first chapter of it. Our tale picks up when David Balfour realizes that his uncle has cheated him out of his inheritance. When David confronts him, his uncle first tries to kill him and then arranges for a man to sell David into slavery. The rest of the book is one great passage after another as David has to move through the highlands and beyond, chased by enemies and accompanied by friends and allies and entangled in the Jacobites and their larger political struggles. The subtitle tells us the plot, being Memoirs of the Adventures of David Balfour in the year 1751, how he was kidnapped and cast away, his sufferings in a desert isle, his journey in the wild highlands, his acquaintance with Alan Breck Stewart and other notorious highland Jacobites, with all that he suffered at the hands of his uncle, Ebenezer Balfour of Shaw's, falsely so-called. Stevenson wasn't too concerned with historical accuracy in his historical romances. Here's how he described his project in the dedication to Kidnapped. Quote, If you ever read this tale, you will likely ask yourself more questions than I should care to answer. As, for instance, how the Appen murder has come to fall in the year 1751, how the Torren rocks have crept so near to Airaid, or why the printed trial is silent as to all that touches David Balfour. These are nuts beyond my ability to crack. But if you tried me on the point of Alan's guilt or innocence, I think I could defend the reading of the text. To this day, you will find the tradition of Eppin clear in Alan's favor. If you inquire, you may even hear that the descendants of the other man who fired the shot are in the country to this day. But that other man's name, inquire as you please, you shall not hear. For the Highlander values a secret for itself and for the congenial exercise of keeping it. I might go on for long to justify one point and own another indefensible. It is more honest to confess at once how little I am touched by the desire of accuracy. This is no furniture for the scholar's library, but a book for the winter evening schoolroom, when the tasks are over and the hour for bed draws near, and honest Alan, who was a grim old fire-eater in his day, has in this new avatar no more desperate purpose than to steal some young gentleman's attention from his Ovid, carry him a while into the highlands and the last century, and pack him to bed with some engaging images to mingle with his dreams. End quote. Packing us to bed with some engaging images to mingle with our dreams. That's a beautiful summary of Stevenson's two great adventure novels, Kidnapped and Treasure Island. Stevenson had a gift of choosing the right word at the right time. It was as if his pen was a master of the game Spillikins, one admiring critic said. Or as we know the game here in America, pick up sticks. His pen found the right word like two deft fingers pulling up the stick with acumen. We'll close with his last masterwork, the hugely influential Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, an 1886 novella that finds a home on our shelf with Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray, Henry James's Turn of the Screw, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, just about all of Poe, Wells's Island of Dr. Moreau and the Invisible Man, and other spooky classics that transcended their genres. Jekyll and Hyde, the novella gives us the concept of two alter egos of a main character and the wild contradictions between public and private selves. A narrator who is a friend of Dr. Henry Jekyll hears about a small girl who was trampled by a horrific-looking man named Edward Hyde. Hyde agrees to pay the family money and produces a check, but the check is from Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll, the narrator, assumes that the monstrous Hyde has been blackmailing the good Dr. Jekyll. For much of the story, we see the two of them as separate people, with Jekyll being viewed as sort of a victim of Hyde, until the clues start to reveal that the two men are one and the same. I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. The words Jekyll and Hyde are basically synonymous with the idea of a man who turns from his good side to his bad side during the darkness of night using potions to split himself into two. Two years later, Jack the Ripper shocked London, and many people turned to the Stevenson story to try to explain how such a creature could roam the streets at night and melt back into civilized society during the day. 
There's a lot to unpack in this story. It's practically made for literary analysis and critical thinking. What does it say about human nature and the way good wrestles with evil within all of us? What does it say about Victorian England and the repressive atmosphere that forces a stultifying level of polite norms onto human beings who, as we know, have baser urges lurking within? Or is this about drugs and addiction? Is it about science gone wrong? Is it about personality disorders, crises of identity, all of the above, no doubt, and more? I'm in my 4 a.m. podcasting hovel now, working in the dark, somewhere in that pre-dawn world, where Hyde morphs back into Jekyll, perhaps willingly, perhaps with violent anger. A week ago, I was in gorgeous Edinburgh, enjoying a perfect and rare cloudless sky and the bright sunshine cascading down onto the cobblestone streets. I ducked into a cafe for lunch, the Deacon Brody Cafe, right off the high street. And all around me were the murals, telling the life story of a man named William Brody, a well-respected cabinet maker, who in fact built a cabinet that Stevenson himself had in his childhood home. Brody was successful and well-regarded. He was given a seat on the city council and was soon doing work for some of Edinburgh's wealthiest citizens. He was also a skilled locksmith, which went hand-in-hand with making cabinets, and many of these luminaries trusted him with their keys so he could complete his work even when they weren't home. Why not? Well, Brody was not just a friendly and polite cabinet maker, he was also a secret gambler who enjoyed rolling dice and betting on cockfighting matches. He had two mistresses no one knew about. They cost money, so he didn't just use those keys, he copied them. And then, at night, he snuck into the homes and robbed the clients. The story of a double life fascinated Stevenson. He drew upon Brody for his Jekyll and Hyde story, and he added another man he knew, Eugene Chantrell, a psychopath who killed his wife and four others with his favorite dish of toasted cheese and opium. Stevenson had been a friend of Chantrell's. Recently, some notes were discovered. Stevenson couldn't believe that the man he'd spent hours with could commit such horrors. He used this as grist for his literary mill when writing the story of Jekyll and Hyde. And what did Stevenson and the psychopath Chantrell spend hours doing? Were they talking about murder and violence and the sordid side of life? No, dear listeners. That was what threw Stevenson for a loop. While this man was no doubt This companion of his was no doubt thinking about his soon-to-be-dead wife and his victims and his toasted cheese and opium concoction of death. He was sitting with Stevenson. The two of them were calmly and politely chatting about literature. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. Did we do justice to our man, Robert Louis Stevenson? I hope so. We didn't talk much about his poetry, which is found in the volume A Child's Garden of Verses, even today. It's read in schools, apparently. Not in America so much. Maybe in the UK. We didn't talk about his letters either, but both are worth checking out if you have the time. Maybe do a little dabbling in there, or maybe just treat yourself to one of the big three. Kidnapped, Jekyll and Hyde, and the Sea Cook, a.k.a. Treasure Island. Here are a few more words of wisdom which I'll share now that I've returned from my journey. This is from Stevenson, quote, I travel not to go anywhere 
but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move. End quote. And let's close with this one, another quote from Stevenson, which is so tricky to pull off in today's world of strife and lunacy. Quote, There is no duty we so much underrate as the duty of being happy. By being happy, we sow anonymous benefits upon the world. End quote. I'd like to think that's true. I've tried to follow that when I can find time for it in my day and room for it in my heart. And I hope you do as well. Being happy, it's our duty. Speaking of time in your day and room in your heart, thank you for listening to this little wet gosling of a podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>